This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be speaking to Dr. Elizabeth L. Seltzer about her book titled In Case of Emergency, How Technologies Mediate Crisis and Normalize Inequality, which has just come out in 2022 from NYU Press. This I found to be a fascinating book um, because it takes something that we are all very familiar with in a lot of ways and given the circumstances, don't think a lot about. And specifically, this is the technology and media that we use in emergencies. For example, ringing in the United States, 911, um, or a similar number like that in other countries, um, ways to reach out to people if something's gone wrong, all of these kinds of things, whether it's an alert or a smoke alarm or things like that, we don't really think about them. Um, And in a lot of ways, we often rely on them. And turns out, as evidenced in this book, there's rather a lot to think about and a lot of really fascinating things as soon as we enter into thinking about these technologies and these spaces. So Elizabeth, I'm really excited to welcome you to the podcast to tell us all about it. Well, thank you so much. I am really excited to be here and get a chance to talk about the book, much of which was written during COVID, uh, closing off opportunities to talk about the book. (laughs) Well, glad to give you an opportunity to talk about it um, because there's so much to get into. But if you could start us off perhaps first introducing yourself a little bit and explaining why you decided to write this book. Absolutely. So I'm an associate professor of media studies at the University of Virginia. uh, And I think of myself primarily as grounded in critical media studies and disability studies. Uh, My first book was about disability accessibility in digital contexts. uh, But with any book, you have to make decisions about where you draw the lines. Uh, And one thing that I knew I didn't look at in that first book was the question of emergency because disability access is treated very differently in emergencies than it is in broadcast television or social media contexts or things like that. So I knew that this was something I had sidetracked. And then when I started looking into it, it just sort of snowballed uh, because there are so many forms of emergency media that surround us. And there has been so uh, little on ongoing critical engagement uh, with how these work, how they function, uh, and in whose interests they operate. Uh, So it sort of snowballed from there and turned into a much larger project uh, that crosses many media types uh, and many forms of social marginalization and uh, 
yeah, it just became a much bigger project than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> I think a lot of books start that way. Um, and That's it's really, right. Yeah. And it's really helpful to kind of have that just be a point of conversation that, you know, we can reassure people that when you have an idea, it doesn't have to immediately seem like, oh, this is going to be a great book. You know, you can have an idea and kind of explore it and see what happens. Um, so thank you for sharing that with us. Um, to start as, our, as kind of the next thing, I'd love to lay some sort of foundational discussion um, before we get into some of the particular media types that you look at. Because as you've just mentioned in that answer, kind of what counts as an emergency is actually not a simple question. So given obviously its relevance to the whole book, it's in the title, etc., could you help us understand what you mean by emergency and emergency media? Absolutely. Um, so I want to maybe start off by saying that I conceive of emergency and emergency media as both um, deeply culturally situated concepts. Uh, and so I'm working in the context of the United States and what emergency and emergency media look like in other places may be different is almost certainly different. Uh, but in this context, I wanted to look uh, at emergency media as a way of understanding that sort of big umbrella, all of those media technologies and systems that inform us of emergencies, that allow us to inform others, uh, and that connect people to systems of rapid response or aid. Uh, so these emergency media encompass things like you mentioned, like 911, uh, wireless text alerts. Um, I also talk about maps as emergency media. I talk about um, various forms of panic buttons, smartwatches, etc. cetera. Uh, these are all sort of media technologies that use sound, screens, uh, communication um, to connect people in moments of crisis. I also rely really heavily on um, a concept of emergency claims, uh, which was elaborated by a political theorist named Jennifer Rubenstein in the context of international aid. Uh, and she argues that uh, to call something an emergency and have people accept that, uh, you have to present events in a way that fits a certain narrative. Essentially, you have to argue that some person, thing, or state of affairs is valuable, but is threatened with harm or destruction, uh, and that human agency is capable of mitigating some of that harm or destruction. So in that sort of brief definition, Rubenstein gives us these ideas of value. Uh, when we say that there is an emergency, we, there is something valuable at stake. Uh, and this idea of sort of an action-oriented emergency. Emergencies are things that we can respond to. They're not necessarily inevitable. They are not necessarily um, things that just sort of happen and can't be responded to. So in this understanding of emergency, um, I think it's really helpful to think about how this can apply at a variety of scales. This is a definition that works for individual emergencies as well as emergencies that affect larger groups of people. Uh, and it allows us to start thinking about some of those differences of culture and value uh, that are at play when we make sense of whether or not something is an emergency. 
Uh, so Rubenstein gives the example of how a single shooting uh, in a crowded space may be considered an emergency. Uh, but that sort of pervasive gun violence in the United States is not considered an emergency. It's considered the normal state of the world. And so similarly, I think this led to thinking a lot about how emergency media serve some populations, often populations understood to be more valuable, uh, better than they do others. Hmm. Definitely a lot to think about, even just in that initial answer and sort of scene laying. So thank you for kind of taking us through that theoretically um, and with examples. I think that can really help. And of course, we're going to do a lot of that um, discussing the book further. Now, a note to listeners, we're obviously not going to be able to get through all of the detail and all of the examples in the book, unfortunately. However, hopefully we can do a bit of a highlights tour to give you a sense of it. Um, And of course, we can point you to the book for more examples and more detail. So um, to give people a bit of a sense of what else is in the book, uh, besides this fascinating discussion of what even is an emergency, um, you mentioned in your initial answer that you cover a range of types of emergency media in the book. Could you tell us what the types are that you focus on and how and why you chose these types? So I focus on a range of examples throughout the book, uh, and I've, I loosely group the chapters by media types uh, to make it um, a little bit more organized. Uh, and I think that part of the reason um, for doing a sort of quasi-typology uh, is that there are so many forms of emergency media that serve more than one function and that overlap. Uh, so I talk extensively, for instance, about alarms, uh, fire alarms, tornado sirens, um, baby monitors even are a form of alarm. Uh, I talk about alerts, uh, which are usually sort of text or um, spoken messages in moments of larger crisis. So alerts may come um, usually from government agencies and sort of pushed out. Uh, I talk about campus media, which often encompass alarms and alerts. Uh, I talk about um, maps as a form of emergency media um, that communicate you know, weather emergencies, certainly, um, but are also used for representations of emergency data, such as rates of COVID. Uh, I talk about um, 911 and reports, ways that people can report emergencies uh, to the authorities. Uh, and then I talk about what I call testimony, uh, which are spaces in which people express uh, their experiences of emergency for an audience of peers rather than for the government or any other sort of central um, organizing institution. Uh, and these testimonies function as a way of um, getting us to see things that maybe are not traditionally considered emergencies, uh, but that are experienced that way or that deserve a certain kind of attention. Uh, examples throughout the book include some health technologies, uh, as well as um, updated technological systems um, that support alerting and reporting and so on. Um, and in terms of how they were chosen, Again, we have a bit of a snowball here, and I wanted to look at emergency media from a number of different angles, uh, but I was also constrained by um, 
what kind of research was possible during COVID uh, and what kinds of media technologies and institutions I really wanted to work with. Hmm. Well, that makes a lot of sense. It also makes sense why you've ended up with such an interesting list <laughs> um, <laughs> driven by that sort of constraint, but also freedom in some senses. Um, I think it's not a surprise that every single section is like, ooh, okay, let's think about this. Um, and hopefully we can convey a little bit of that in the questions now that we'll explore some of them. Um, so this is definitely because I'm obsessed with maps. So my first question <laughs> has to be, tell us about how maps are emergency media and the ways this can maybe be helpful emergency media, but maybe also some of the pitfalls. Yeah, absolutely. This is one that I didn't realize I was writing about until halfway through the process of working on the book. Hmm. Uh, because we, I think, take a lot of mapping for granted. Uh, we're used to seeing um, particularly uh, GIS maps these days are built into all kinds of smartphone apps. We can map our location in so many different ways. We're used to seeing live weather radar in weather apps, and we don't necessarily think about that um, as being anything other than mundane. Um, but I argue in the book that maps mediate emergency by indicating likely locations of risk, uh, as in the case of a weather map that shows an incoming storm. Uh, and that in doing so, they can construct particular locations and time periods as sites of emergency or can suggest that there is a danger to be avoided in those spaces. One of the interesting things about thinking about maps as emergency media is also that we are thinking about what uh, Johanna Drucker calls arguments made in graphical form. Uh, maps are often presented very neutrally uh, but they are always a matter of uh, decisions. So in the book, I go into detail with the kinds of COVID maps that we saw in 2020 and 2021 um, using a sort of familiar Mercator projection and national and subnational borders uh, to illustrate how COVID rates changed in various areas and to use sort of color saturation um, that corresponded to our expectations, right? Lighter yellow meant less COVID, darker red uh, meant more. And when we have maps making these arguments in graphical form, uh, they can be really easy to understand. You can feel like you grasp them very quickly. They're very visual, very straightforward. Uh, but the details of how they work uh, and how that data is represented and difference between say a rate and an absolute number of cases uh, mean that interpretation of maps is always a little bit trickier uh, than the quick view would suggest. And so when we talk about maps as emergency media, maps are often things that drive our decisions about this is or is not a safe space. Uh, and those decisions are not always being made on the basis of uh, information as much as they're being made on the basis of the representation. Um, some scholars have talked about this as a sort of operational loop in which we make decisions based on the visual models and the visual models uh, represent the results of those decisions uh, in ways that can sort of feed on each other over time. Mm. Of course, now we're looking at a state where maps look uh, very different. And um, here in the US, CDC redefined what COVID rates would mean. And so overnight, maps that were bright red became 
middling yellow, uh, not because rates of COVID changed, but because what was being measured changed uh, in a way that's not always obvious from just looking at the familiar map. Hmm. And so how might kind of these decisions that go into maps, like, can you give us an example of how a map might be saying one thing, but actually that's not necessarily helping us or giving us the most accurate picture? Sure. So um, one element that got folded into this chapter on mapping was that um, the use of social media maps uh, or smartphone shared mapping information uh, was really common among college students for uh, monitoring their safety and that of their friends and allowing their parents uh, to know that they were safe. Turning on your location sharing was super popular. Uh, And almost uniformly, students expressed that if they saw that someone was um, on the map uh, displayed as at their house or in their dorm, um, that they were where they were supposed to be, that they were safe because, oh, they're in a safe location. Now, given what we know about rates of sexual assault and other forms of crime on campus, your home in your dorm is maybe not the safest space most sexual assault occurs in those spaces. And yet the structure of how people talk about campus safety and the ways that we think of locations as safe or risky uh, construct those as safe spaces. We can look at the map and everything is fine, um, but there's a lot of information that the map can't tell us um, about what that space is actually like. Mm. Very helpful. Thank you for the example. Um, And in fact, works out very nicely for me because I'd love to stay on the American college campus for a moment, um, thinking about this idea of physical places and whether or not they might be safe versus feel safe and how we think about those things um, and ask you about blue light emergency phones, which for anyone who's not been to an American university are essentially these big pillars with bright blue lights at the top of them and have um, phones that essentially ring directly to the local police or campus security or something like that. And the idea is they're placed physically around campus in, by implication, I guess, places that maybe aren't safe so that you can like get help easily. Um, And I thought it was really striking and really helpful that you call this part of an infrastructure of feeling. Can you help us unpack this a bit? Yes, absolutely. This was um, such a fun part of the project because these phones are truly ubiquitous at American universities. Uh, There are over 500 here at UVA alone. Uh, And yet I wanted to um, understand a little bit about when and how they were put in and how they've been used as emergency media, what kind of emergencies are reported and so on. Uh, But what I found very quickly was that while these were largely constructed in the 1980s and 1990s uh, in response to fears about sexual assault, uh, a couple of high profile cases, uh, and as part of a response to student demands for better lighting around campuses in general, Uh, they were almost never used. A campus newspaper from my hometown uh, ran a story in 1992 that had a very sad little illustration of one of these call boxes that said, although it has never been used, this phone is located at this intersection. Uh, And so building from there uh, and looking to various campus archives and news reports and so on, uh, it became clear that these were a very visible means of responding 
to the problem of campus safety. Uh, they were expensive to install, but once installed, they became a very easy sort of touchstone. You can show people that issues are taken seriously. You can demonstrate that the campus is safe because these safety technologies are placed all around. So you have this public facing reassurance of safety. Uh, and I wanted to talk about that as a kind of infrastructure of feeling. This hardwired technological infrastructure exists in large part to make people feel better. Uh, so drawing on William's classic formulation of a structure of feeling as a particular sense of life, I argue that this sort of feeling of safety uh, is concretized through these media systems uh, and that the infrastructure is intended to continue making us feel safe, uh, regardless of whether it's ever used or whether it contributes to safety in any meaningful sense. Um, so this was a really interesting sort of wrinkle uh, in thinking about emergency media in that this is emergency media that functions not actually to report or respond, uh, but to sort of stave off that sense of emergency, to reassure people that everything is fine because we have this should we need it, uh, regardless of whether we ever actually use it. Hmm. I must admit, I, in addition to finding that intellectually fascinating, um, as I had my own undergraduate experience at an American university, um, it was very familiar to see them and then go, oh, so... The, the fact that as an undergraduate, I always was like, why would someone use that? Why are those there? Is not actually a totally random thing to be thinking. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's, that's actually the, the right reaction. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just remember being very confused, um, but also that they were the focus of safety briefings as first years um, explaining that this is how you would feel safe and um, get help. And yet, I'm not sure I ever came across or heard of anyone using them. Um, Interesting to see that sort of studied more properly. Anecdotally, I think um, most calls tend to be things like I, I locked myself out of my car. Mm. That I mean, that would make sense. I, I can see how that could be constructed as an emergency. Uh, and then, of course, the rise of cell phones um, makes them even less useful. Uh, so we've seen them repurposed as pillars for sirens or as something that can broadcast alerts uh, and serve multiple purposes uh, because we have this technological infrastructure in place and people are looking for things to do with it. So I'd like to turn to alerts, in fact, um, oh, sure. because alerts, again, we don't really think about them. Um, and we certainly don't, I think many of us don't think of them as being media work um, or having really cultural significance in any particular way. So clearly, after reading your book, I know that those assumptions are not nearly everything we could think about or probably should be thinking about for alerts. So can you enlighten us to the sort of media cultural aspect of the idea of alerts? Absolutely. Um, so emergency alerts, emergency alerts um, are often received as sort of pure information. Uh, they're often written in an extremely dry tone. Uh, they're brief. They are. They often appear as an attempt to simply inform or direct uh, individuals. Uh, but I wanted to turn a somewhat different lens on this uh, because they don't come from nowhere. Uh, they, in fact, come from 
hundreds of licensed organizations around the United States that have the authority to issue emergency alerts. Uh, and people in those offices write the alerts. So thinking about that as a form of media work uh, means thinking about the fact that people are constructing this message uh, for a particular audience uh, and that they may be doing so more or less effectively. Uh, so in the book, I go through a number of examples of how um, particularly COVID-era alerts displayed wide variation in how agencies decided to talk about this emergency. Um, some locations set initially sent alerts for every single case, um, which was a confusing choice because they would simply say, you know, 70-year-old female COVID positive in this county. Um, and there would be no other information and no sense of what to do with that information. Um, so those alerts maybe didn't work super well. Um, but then you would have others that were very much tied to cultural context, warning people COVID is still a threat even on Easter. Yeah, consider not attending large group gatherings. Uh, so these are written by people uh, with varying uh, levels of consistency uh, and with varying ideas about who their audience is. Uh, and what's really interesting about thinking about this as media work uh, is that it lets us start thinking about um, the jobs of emergency managers, uh, communication officers, sometimes sheriff's departments, um, who are issuing these alerts are often doing so with very minimal training. Uh, communication has not been an emphasis of their uh, professional training. And so these alerts often arrive without a lot of consideration about questions like how audiences will receive them, how they will appear on a phone, whether they will drive um, the desired action or whether they will be interpreted as annoying uh, and sort of dismissed. Uh, which happens a lot with emergency alerts, uh, especially as we're all so used to getting a host of alerts through smartphones. Um, emergency alerts sometimes fall into that same pile and don't resonate uh, as different or more important um, immediately. Hmm. Interesting. Thank you for explaining that. Um, I think we're probably all going to look at our next text alert maybe a bit differently um, in light of that information. Um, one other aspect of the book that you really kind of go behind the scenes in, in a way that you've described a bit there with thinking about kind of who's writing the alerts, is explaining how the 911 system in America actually works, which I admit is not what I, is not how I thought it worked. Um, and I'm really glad I now have a better understanding of it. So I was wondering if you could likewise enlighten our listeners. Um, how does it actually work and why do we need to know? So I like to say that 911 is essentially a host of local infrastructures held together by a phone number. Uh, there is not a lot of operational or technological consistency nationwide. Uh, while the Federal Communications Commission can require certain things of 911 uh, answering points uh, and can encourage those things, there's very little federal funding. Uh, and there's very little federal direction in terms of how to achieve the stated goals. So this means that every 
911 answering point can work differently from one across the country and differently from one just a few hours down the road. Uh, oftentimes these are funded through uh, state-based taxes. Uh, everyone's phone bill will charge a few cents uh, for emergency services. Uh, according to the FCC, over $1 billion of those 911 funds were reappropriated by state governments to other things uh, between 2012 and 2018. So 911 is often funded at a level that allows it to continue its work, but perhaps not develop or improve its work uh, in major ways. And technological upgrades have been a challenge. Uh, it was a challenge with voice over IP. It was a challenge with mobile phones. Uh, and it continues to be a challenge with uh, texting to 911. Former FCC Chair Tom Wheeler called this uh, a crisis of its own for crisis communications, that 911 technology wasn't keeping pace with consumer technologies. It didn't meet people's expectations of how phone communication might work. And so when it comes to, you know, even today, most jurisdictions can accept text messages, but not all. Uh, and even in jurisdictions that accept text messages, they don't accept images, they don't accept location pins, uh, they don't accept the kinds of interactive features that we might expect if we were using a commercial safety app of some sort, if we were using, um, you know, texting a friend or family member. So all of this is to say that we can't assume that calling 911 will always connect us to the same resources uh, and will always work in exactly the same way. It often doesn't. And beyond that, uh, when we think about calling 911, uh, who we actually talk to can be different. In some jurisdictions, 911 is run directly by a police department or sheriff's office. Uh, and it primarily dispatches police. In other locations, 911 is run um, out of a city government office. Uh, here we call it the Emergency Communication Center. Uh, and they may dispatch police and fire and ambulances. Uh, sometimes ambulance dispatch is its own number. Sometimes calls have to be transferred. You call 911, you get the police station, they transfer you to the ambulance dispatching station. Uh, so who we're talking to and their sort of um, interests and capabilities can be really different too, depending on how a given answering point is structured. Now, this isn't something that I knew before I started working on this book. And so it was a really interesting dive to talk to a variety of 911 professionals about how these differences play out uh, and how they affect the kinds of responses that we might expect uh, when we call 911. Because for most people, calling 911 is unusual. Uh, we often base what we know on what we've seen in films or TV shows or what we've heard from a friend. Um, and so having a better sense of the differences in how senders operate, the idea that um, some can dispatch some forms of aid better than others uh, can help us to be more aware of what we're getting into when we make a 911 call than we would be otherwise. Hmm. Definitely something to know um, and to just kind of understand how something that seems like a super coherent system, 911, emergency call, 
um, actually has a lot of components and pieces built into it. Um, and I want to kind of stay on it because there are so many things about this section of the book. Um, and go back to kind of this idea at the beginning of what counts as an emergency. How do we think of and how do we in a lot of ways create emergency or more accurately in your book, produce emergency? Um, how does the work of 911 professionals, the people kind of behind the system, help produce those ideas of emergency or impact how emergency is produced? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, and I would say that the most direct answer is that 911 professionals are often gatekeepers. They are in a position to either accept what the caller says and say, yes, this is an emergency and we should do something, uh, or to reject it, to say, no, this is not an emergency. We're not going to send somebody out right now. Call your local police station tomorrow. Um, and so this is a position that um, can either reinforce that, yes, what you're calling about is an emergency, we will respond appropriately, uh, or can sort of shut down. This is not an emergency. This is not how you will receive aid for this. Go do something else. Uh, and that's not even getting into like the numbers of prank calls and strange misdials and things that do come through 911. Uh, but, you know, one of my um, informants told a really great story about how as a 911 operator, she co-produces um, understandings of emergency and response uh, by bringing her experience and um, interpretive skills to the interaction. Uh, she described a caller who called and said, um, you know, she needed uh, an ambulance to come to this address right away. Uh, because she was hurt and so on. Um, and then the caller sort of backed off as they were going through questions. The caller's like, actually, never mind. Everything's going to be fine. It's, I don't need anybody to come out. Um, I've got to go. Um, and so the 911 interp, I'm sorry, the 911 um, uh, call taker got off the phone um, and said, you know what? It sounded like something was wrong. Uh, it sounded like she wanted help and then she didn't. I think maybe we should just have someone drive by and check. Uh, and so they dispatched a police car in that case uh, and found that it was a domestic violence situation where the caller had, you know, suddenly been seen and tried to back off of the emergency claim. Uh, and the 911 professional steps in there to say like, no, actually this is an emergency. We do need to do something. It's also important to highlight that 911 uh, professionals can affect what happens in how they relay information. I talked through some examples in the book of how various call takers might um, emphasize or downplay information that they receive from a caller uh, in order to create certain kinds of reactions. Um, so it's the distinction between saying that uh, Tamir Rice, a 12-year-old who was shot by police in Cleveland, Ohio, possibly had a gun uh, sent officers there in a state expecting to see a gun, expecting to see a hostile subject. Uh, whereas other call takers in other cases um, sometimes relay their doubts. They say, oh, well, this caller says that they think there's a weapon, but there's no evidence of that. Or this caller claims that they are acting suspicious, um, but has no other details. Right. These are ways of communicating doubt, ways of communicating this may not be an emergency. This may require a moderate or lower tier response. 
And all of this, of course, feeds into discussions of um, police violence uh, against um, people of color and disabled people in particular, uh, in that when we have police dispatched to what are understood to be potentially dangerous emergencies, uh, they often come in more aggressively uh, than they would have if they were dispatched with an understanding um, that this was a health emergency, a mental health crisis, um, or something that didn't necessarily require immediate violent response. So if we think of 911 professionals as being kind of between the public and emergency response, including police, uh, they're in a unique position to sort of mitigate uh, this relationship and convey information in a way that defines uh, what might happen next. Hmm. Very interesting. Um, And particularly interesting to think about in the context of the next section of the book that focuses on testimony, Um, because the role of anyone involved in 911 um, as a gatekeeper obviously in some ways used to be stronger than it was. Um, the gatekeeping function now is somewhat diluted. That you, Calling 911 is no longer the only way to communicate with strangers um, that something is going on that you might need help with that you think is an emergency. Um, for example, smartphones can now live stream things. Um, so how do you sort of understand testimony when it comes to emergency media, both sort of within the context of kind of known systems like, you know, ringing up 911 and saying, here's what's happening. But also, if we're thinking a lot more broadly than that, particularly given the changes in technology we have now. Yeah, I think given the sorts of social media technologies and things that we have now, uh, there are a lot of different ways that you might uh, share information that you are experiencing some kind of emergency. Uh, And you might do that for a variety of different audiences. Uh, So I talk about testimony in the book as being a kind of emergency claim that's made to peers or a community rather than to an authority. Because of that, it has the possibility of highlighting things that are not usually considered emergencies, um, such as effects of climate change, local crises, and so on, uh, and having them responded to um, by people who are maybe closer to the event, who are acting as um, sort of helpful bystanders, uh, or by having people share that information so that news about this emergency uh, reaches beyond its local context. Now, testimony is interesting because it looks so different uh, in so many different kinds of social media examples. Um, Sometimes we're just looking at someone who says, you know, they're stuck due to a weather emergency. They take a picture of their location. um, They try to say, hey, we're here. We need someone to come help us out of this situation. Uh, And often that kind of testimony gets turned into a more traditional uh, emergency claim somebody will see that social media post and will maybe take it to the authorities or take it to somebody who can uh, go and provide aid. But other forms of uh, emergency testimony um, function more at the level of awareness or um, community formation. Um, So I talk a lot in the book about some examples of um, victims of police violence, 
whose names and hashtags get circulated uh, as a way of pointing to police violence as a structural emergency. So that the emergency is not just this one individual, it's not this one incident, it is pointing to a larger problem. Uh, and as that information is circulated and reaches new audiences, uh, it can lead to uh, different understandings of what is or is not a crisis or what does or does not require response. Um, so testimony is a really interesting space in which to consider how emergency gets defined differently uh, than in more traditional contexts that are bound by governmental definitions of emergency and so on. Hmm. Hmm. Very interesting to think about, um, and especially to think about the future implications of how that, again, might be adapting depending on what technology we end up with, kind of how the government does or does not respond. Um, definitely an area for further sort of um, development, I think, in a lot of really interesting ways. Um, and you, in fact, go into one of the kind of things that obviously has happened before, but maybe is worth more attention um, in the future, which is the idea of um, emergency bids and mutual aid. So I was really interested in your concept of how claims that this is an emergency, I need help, um, differ depending on the context. So not just in terms of kind of gatekeeping, are you trying to convince an authority or trying? are you trying to communicate with friends? Um, but they're also you argue different depending on kind of who you're talking to and what they can possibly provide and sort of other things like that. And I was particularly taken um, by the context you discuss of mutual aid. Um, so I'm wondering if you can maybe explain that a bit to us um, and perhaps help us think about where we might want to take that in future. Yeah, I thought this was a really interesting space in which people were defining new kinds of emergencies and having those definitions accepted. Uh, so making a bid for assistance uh, and then having that bid accepted by often mutual aid organizations. Mutual aid, of course, uh, is defined by Dean Spade as collective coordination to meet each other's needs, uh, usually from an awareness that the systems we have in place are not going to meet them. So mutual aid is explicitly often about meeting needs that we know that institutions are not going to meet. Uh, and those needs thus are often things that traditional systems don't understand as emergencies. Uh, so for instance, a mutual aid group might receive um, a message from someone who is short on rent money or who needs to have a stove in the next week uh, and is looking for assistance. These are not traditional emergencies. You can't call 911 and say, I need a stove. Uh, but they are often emergencies for the people experiencing them. You know, I have no way to prepare hot water for baby formula if I can't get a stove in the next X number of days. Uh, and so mutual aid groups become a space in which different kinds of emergencies can be recognized. Uh, and the mutual aid organizers are then often in the position of doing emergency media work. They're interpreting messages uh, from people who have needs, they're making decisions around urgency or emergency, uh, and they're doing the work of communication uh, with people who need help and people who are available to help. So in the context of mutual aid, we often see very different kinds of 
emergencies um, becoming relevant and becoming recognized. Uh, and we see the same kinds of work and communication happening outside of an institutional context. I think this is really interesting just because um, many of us are raised and conditioned in such a way as to assume that official understandings of emergency are the only ones. Uh, and it's helpful to see where these things work differently uh, in order to think about how official systems, you know, are constrained in what they can do and are constraining our ideas about what is an emergency and crisis uh, in ways that, like I said earlier, protect um, the people and things that are already considered most valuable. Mm. Thank you for explaining that. Um, I think it's quite an interesting way, again, to think about kind of that question you raised at the beginning, what counts as an emergency? Um, and I'd like to kind of, as we get towards the end of our tour of the book, um, one thing I particularly appreciated is that you are not just contributing ways of thinking theoretically about these things. You're not just contributing ways of um, understanding these through examples that are probably not often brought together in this way. Um, in addition to those two things, you're also contributing ways of responding, thinking of ways of responding. Um, you know, what can we as listeners, as readers, um, just as sort of general curious people um, be doing in interactions with these kinds of media and thinking about them? Um, and I was particularly interested in one of the points you raise around embracing vulnerability. Can you help us understand why you think this might be a potential response to emergency media? Yeah, absolutely. Um, throughout the book, I argue that uh, when, if we were to think about this understanding of emergency uh, as an ideology, as something that sort of structures our expectations, um, emergency ideologically exists in opposition to normalcy. Emergency is a departure from normal. Uh, and as such, we often have emergency systems that are designed to bring us back to normal uh, as quickly as possible, uh, or to declare that things are normal and the emergency is over as quickly as possible. I think vulnerability becomes a really helpful um, counter ideology in this way, in that vulnerability doesn't uh, function on this opposition between emergency and normalcy, it suggests that there is a constant possibility of um, bad things happening, right? That we are all sort of constantly in um, a position of risk. Uh, we are all potentially in a position of need. Uh, and vulnerability thus moves us from this kind of either or framework. And it means that we need to think about injury and exhaustion and debility uh, as common features of life, as something that we have to deal with all the time, not things that we can just ignore until there's a crisis. Uh, and so embracing vulnerability uh, becomes a call to think about how can we meet our needs as a society? How can we provide the things that people need before there are emergencies? How can we be proactive uh, in thinking about um, the kinds of access and care and support 
that people might need before they reach moments of emergency. Uh, and so it's a big ask. It's a big sort of uh, movement, both theoretically and practically, to say, move away from emergency and normalcy and embrace this sort of constant vulnerability um, as normal, as as taken for granted. Um, but I think that it is an important move in moving towards um, commitments of care and not just rapid response uh, that attempts to solve problems um, as quickly as possible, rather than addressing the structural reasons for those problems in the first place. Hmm. And also moving away from the idea that there is one normal. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Which, as soon as you start to think about it, becomes very clear that that's just not the case. And yet, again, not always something we think about. So this is a very helpful sort of provocation to bring that more front of mind. Um, and you do list a bunch of other recommendations. Um, and unfortunately, we probably don't have time to get into all of them. But in addition to the idea of embracing vulnerability, are there maybe one or two other recommendations you'd particularly like to highlight? Yeah, I think there are a few things that um, in the last chapter of the book, I talk about some very practical solutions, because I think that um, when talking about these things, it's important to move beyond the theoretical. Uh, and one of the things that I suggest sort of m most broadly uh, is simply uh, that we observe and act on um, local infrastructures of feeling. So what are the things around us that are designed to make us feel safe? Uh, and what does that feeling of safety actually accomplish? Um, so I think this is particularly relevant as we might be surrounded by things like surveillance cameras. Uh, these are often placed in the interests of safety. Uh, they may be intended to make us feel safer. Uh, but the reality of many surveillance cameras is that they can be used uh, in unexpected ways. Uh, they are creating archives of data and images that persist for unknown durations and uses. Uh, and they potentially create new risks. So thinking about this question of sort of what is here to make us feel safe versus what is actually making us safer might be helpful. Mm. I also talk at length about um, learning about your local context of emergency response. Um, so as we discussed, most people don't have a good sense of how 911 operates uh, nationally or locally. Uh, but knowing something about your local situation can give you a basis for potentially taking further actions. If you live in a community where 911 is run by the sheriff's office, you might think about whether that actually serves your community's needs. Uh, does it make sense to have sheriff's deputies uh, answering these calls? Or might it make sense to have civilian communication officers uh, who are not responsible to the sheriff's office? How would that change what your local 911 dispatch does? Uh, and then just as a third recommendation here, because we can't go through everything, um, I would suggest that people think about how they might use a variety of emergency media systems, uh, social media sites, et cetera, to foster communities of care and relationships with each other, uh, rather than simply replicating uh, surveillance and uh, infrastructures of feeling that keep us safe how can we actually reach out and help each other? 
So this might be through mutual aid. It might be through things like meal trains where everyone signs up to bring food to someone who needs it. Uh, it might be through neighborhood um, social media groups. It might be through other forms of uh, connection and interaction. But thinking about embracing vulnerability and embracing responses to needs before they become emergencies, um, we can use all kinds of emergency media and other media systems to build networks of care um, that help keep everyone safe before the crisis uh, emerges. Thank you for outlining those. Um, I do really appreciate the kind of practicality of them, both because um, not everyone has a way in as easily to theory, um, but also because in a lot of ways it makes theory more powerful to be able to link these things together um, and therefore give kind of new depth of understanding to both. So thank you very much for um, highlighting those recommendations to us. Um, as my last question, and hopefully not the hardest one I've asked, uh, this book has obviously just come out and you've written it under very challenging circumstances to write a book. Um, so is there anything particularly fun and celebratory you're doing on the horizon that you we could all be inspired by after our next project? Or is there a new project you're eager to get your teeth into? Um, sort of, I guess the question is, kind of if people look you up, what are you working on or what are you up to these days? So obviously the book just came out and so I'm spending a lot of time talking about the book. Um, but I'm also looking at the moment to follow up on um, those focus groups with college students that we did around sort of how they use technology to feel safe on campus. Um, and I want to go back to a couple of groups in particular uh, in a post-COVID environment? Like, what does safety look like now? Um, because when we did those, we were not at all focused on health. Uh, and I'm really curious to see how people's notions of safety and emergency have changed in this kind of post-pandemic world. Uh, beyond that, I am continuing to uh, write about disability media in all kinds of um, contexts. Uh, most surprisingly, in the context of 1990 sitcoms. Uh, so <laughs> some continuations of the book and some things that are totally different. Amazing. Well, thank you for sharing those little bits with us. Um, best of luck with them. And while you are off exploring the various projects, listeners can read the book that we've been discussing, which again is titled In Case of Emergency, How Technologies Mediate Crisis and Normalize Inequality from NYU Press in 2022. Liz, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad to have a chance to talk about it. And I thank you so much for these wonderful questions.